environmentalism, social justice, and governance are coming for you, and it won't be pretty. Today on The Grid. The Grid, a digital frontier. I pictured patriots as they moved throughout our country. Do they look like individuals or small business? Were the rallies like church? I keep dreaming of a world I hope to one day see. And then, today, I got in. Hello, fellow Americans. This is Chris Coleman, your host with the Kingdom Patriot Group. Welcome to The Grid, where faith, politics, and commerce intersect. This episode of The Grid is brought to you by America First Insurance Group. America First Insurance Group. Insuring your life, protecting your liberty. It's so important for our audience to know that there's an insurance group out there that is working in such a way that any profits that they might donate are not going to go to liberal causes. America First Insurance Group. We have contact information in the show notes. So if you want to quote, check out our show notes. Welcome to this week's News and Review, sponsored by FM Painting. FM Painting Company, located in the heart of Amish country in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, has been in business since 1996. New construction, custom homes, remodels, and more, you name it, they do it. Frequently ranked as the top painting company in Lancaster County, FM Painting is a high quality, service oriented organization in both commercial and residential spaces. I've known the owner, Brandon McCartney, for more than 25 years. He is a devoted family man and passionately loves God and country. He is exactly what American small business is all about. To get a quote today, call 717-569-3680 or visit their website at fmpainting.com. Well, our first news story today is particularly relevant given today's podcast topic of ESG. And that's this. President Biden actually vetoed a bill for the first time in his presidency this past Monday. Now, that ought to give you pause anyway. But because the Democrats have controlled the House of Representatives and the Senate, and of course, the executive branch, there's been no need to veto anything. They've been running everything through like a ramrod. Well, Biden argued that the legislation that was put forth by the Republicans, and he specifically called them the MAGA Republicans, he said that their legislation was horrible because this legislation was going to prevent the Biden administration from taking environmental, social, and corporate governance issues into account when making investment decisions. Of course, GOP lawmakers argue that ESG is a measure of a corporation's loyalty to the woke culture movement and should not be taken into account when you're investing. That's how this administration sees it. Speaking of climate-related, a federal judge actually delivered a blow to Biden's climate agenda. In his decision this past Sunday, Judge Jeffrey Brown ruled that the so-called Waters of the United States rule announced by the EPA poses irreparable harm to residents of Texas and Idaho, two states that have challenged these regulations. Now, Brown did decline to issue a nationwide injunction, but he did note that 25 other states have challenged the rule in two separate ongoing lawsuits. That's why you know where this is headed to the Supreme Court. In economic news, the economy is slowing, banks are reeling, inflation is scorching high, real incomes are dropping, home prices are falling, and Americans everywhere are becoming poor by the minute. Then you add to that the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, infuriating bailouts, 
and the resulting panic and potential run on the banks. Oh wait, let's not forget to add border chaos and the catastrophic pullout from Afghanistan. The overwhelming response of all of these failures by this administration is to do what? To blame President Trump. And specifically in relation to the banks, to blame him for loosening some regulations in 2018. But here's what Biden didn't say. They knew. Regulators knew that Silicon Valley Bank was on the brink of failure. They knew last summer the Fed spotted fatal weaknesses. And in fact, some said these matters require immediate attention. They told SVB management last fall that its model was flawed and it could result in a run on the deposits. But despite this grave warning, the management failed to change course. And of course, all their supervisors and even the feds failed to do anything about it. So by early this spring, Silicon Valley Bank was yet again in another review. This one on its risk management practices. And the bottom line, there weren't any. They didn't have a chief risk officer. They had no one doing any kind of risk management. So, in other words, there's plenty of regulations and processes in place that could have prevented the catastrophe that occurred at SVB. And some critics have really called out the San Francisco Fed, the Supervisory Authority, Chief Mary Daly for negligence. Some have rightly said that having the SVB CEO Greg Becker on the Overseer Fed Board posed an obvious and dangerous conflict of interest, and I would agree. It's hard to dismiss those who assert the eagerness in which the Fed, Treasury, and White House stepped in to bail out SVB. In fact, Signature as well. Many people are saying it's absolutely because of the cozy relationships and giant political donations that Democrats received from the tech community. It is indeed one big happy valley. And after all, these bailouts, well, we shouldn't be calling them bailouts. They actually infuriate our European allies. There's so much complexity to this. It's a great embarrassment to Treasury Janet Yellen because she resisted this, because she promised the world, as she tried to seeds U.S. banking authority and sovereignty to the world, she has promised the world that the U.S. would never again do bank bailouts. But yet, here's where we are. And I even remember Biden was specific, specifically challenged. Actually, it wasn't Biden. I guess it was Karine Jean-Pierre was challenged with, what about all the individual banks in Oklahoma? What would happen if they went belly up? And the response was, that the, the Fed and the president would make that call on whether or not they are bailed out. So the short answer is, no, they would not. Even worse, a recent study shows there's 186 additional banks that are vulnerable to this same type of collapse. And I can guarantee you the government will be unable or unwilling to bail them all out. There's one reason we're in this debacle, folks. President Biden, Democrats in Congress, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, Fed Chair Jay Powell, they've all orchestrated this unbelievable, reckless trashing of our economy. There's lots of reasons behind the scenes, but at the core, they are all selfish reasons and they're politically designed for their own self-interest. In other but closely related economic news, the Fed raised interest rates a quarter point this past week. And the Fed says we've got to stay this course in this fight against stubborn inflation. It was a unanimous decision and it put the key benchmark at between four and three quarters and five percent, the highest interest rate since 2007. But more importantly, it was near zero one year ago. It marks the ninth consecutive rate increase. In fact, in December, there was a half point increase and there were four consecutive jumbo size three quarter basis point increases. Unbelievable. But the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank actually complicated the Fed's efforts because it's actually the rapid rise in interest rates that played a direct role in the bank's failure. 
So increasing rates, again, could exacerbate the instability within the financial system. The new economic predictions laid out after the meeting showed that 17 out of the 18 officials who participated expect the federal rate to rise to 5.1%. So that likely means one more quarter point increase and that that will stay the same through 2024 when there might be a reduction down to 4.3%. Nothing but good news on the horizon because of these yahoos. Okay, and some cultural news. How about Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan? They're hosting separate graduation celebrations based on race and sexuality this year. The striking part of the story is how it violates, to me, the whole idea of inclusion. I thought this movement was supposed to bring us together, not divide us. I'll let you be the judge. And in other cultural news, a transgender woman finishes first in a New York City cycling event, and it sparks outrage, as it should. As a reminder, a transgender woman is a man who identifies as a woman, but has the biological characteristics of man, including muscle mass, strength, and endurance. This is not going to end well. We continue to go down this road with Leah Thomas and the swimming. At some point, this has to come to a head. In our last story, President Biden's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal employees was blocked Thursday in federal appeals court. This came out of the Fifth Circuit, and it reversed a three-judge panel of the same court that actually upheld the requirement last year. In a rare hearing, the full court rejected the government's argument that courts don't have jurisdiction over pre-enforcement challenges to Biden's vaccine mandate. The effect of the court's decision to uphold a preliminary injunction issued by the federal judge in January 2022 that blocked the mandate. At the time, the Biden administration has said that nearly 98% of covered employees had already been vaccinated. I expect to see more of this. And the reason is I've seen the court shift when, when they realized that much of what we experienced in the pandemic was overstated and the effectiveness of the vaccines in preventing and stopping COVID was overstated. I've seen more of this from the courts. So it'll be interesting, but this is clearly headed to the Supreme Court. It's a really, really important because Biden tried to use all of these arms of the federal government, the executive branch, to force down vaccine mandates. More to come on this as it progresses. Folks, for this week's News and Review, that's a wrap. Well, let's start today with just a little bit of trivia. What does Tesla, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and ExxonMobil have in common? I'm sure you guessed it. They are all part of the S&P 500 ESG Index. Well, at least until May of last year when Tesla was kicked out. Why? Well, the S&P 500 ESG Index uses environmental, social, and governance data to rank and effectively recommend companies to investors. Its criteria includes hundreds of data points per company that pertain to the way the businesses affect the planet, how they treat stakeholders, keep that in mind, we'll talk about that later, not just shareholders. They include customers, employees, vendors, partners, and neighbors. While Tesla was booted, keep in mind, the leading electric car manufacturer in the world was booted because of their lack of low-carbon strategy and codes of business conduct, along with alleged racism and poor working conditions at the Tesla factory in Fremont, California. All of these, they say, affected their score. Let that sink in for a minute, because this is the backdrop of our discussion today. ESG is not on the horizon, folks. It is not in the future. ESG is now. So that brings us to the ESG topic. It is broad, it's deep, and it has way more content 
that we can cover in one episode. And that is the topic of environmental social governance, aka ESG. Throughout this year, we're going to do several podcasts to cover this religion. And yes, that's what I'm calling it. It is the preferred religion of the purveyors of wokeness. So today we're going to define what ESG actually is and look at its origins. And they are significant. And when I say significant, I cannot overstate this. There is a negative impact to freedom, to commerce, to faith. Pretty much all facets of civilized and traditional society is impacted, and most of that impact is highly negative, and it's in your face. However, prior to this discussion, let's level set. Let's talk about some terms and definitions that you're going to hear. You're going to hear words like environmentalism. Now, I'm not talking about just being a good steward of the environment. I think most of us believe in that. I'm talking about this fanatical religious view in which the environment has become a person's God, where the whole devotion, the entire totality of devotion, trumps all things, including human life. For example, save the whales, save the trees, but kill and abort the unborn. You'll hear words like social, or should I say socialism? You will hear all kinds of fancy words like equality and equity, but at the end of the day, these are purely social issues. Diversity, equity, inclusion, Black Lives Matter, sustainability, gender ideation, gender transition, fluidity, race, nationality. All of this falls into this social bucket. Even abortion, I'm sorry, I mean reproductive freedom, falls into this space. Any social issue, movement or agenda, or contagion falls into this bucket. We talk about governance. This is the rule, the authority, the framework in which there is formalized, codified accountability and consequences. This is the hammer to make sure that the agenda happens. You hear words like shareholder. By definition, a shareholder is an owner. When you're a shareholder in a mutual fund or stock, you're an owner. Yeah, you're a tiny owner, but you still are an owner nonetheless. Owners invest in companies, and they expect to get a return for that investment. That's the quintessential definition of an owner. And then this new term, stakeholder. Well, this is a person who isn't necessarily invested in a company. They could, but not necessarily. But it goes way beyond an investor. It's really anybody who's impacted by the company's activity. For example, if Walmart buys the property next to me and decides to put their store 50 feet from my driveway, well, I now become a stakeholder because it impacts me. The city government is a stakeholder because they're getting tax revenue. The people in the community are also stakeholders because they have a place to shop. Stakeholders are often viewed as the employees, customers, community, supply chain folks, investors, owners, lenders, and like I stated earlier, and the government. And when you start talking about ESG and the shareholder theory, what you'll learn that the business's return is not focused on the shareholder, but now on the stakeholder. Very, very important because the stakeholders in many cases are not the ones that have put up the money. So I think those definitions are a good beginning and are going to help us today in this discussion. So let's get started. Is there a better place to go for the definition than ESG's website itself? Yep, you got it. There's actually a website called ESG.org. Here's what they say. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. First coined in 2005, ESG covers a wide range of issues that may have a direct or indirect impact on financial relevance. Some of these issues that come under the purview of ESG reporting include resource management, supply chain management, organizational health, safety policies, and building trust through transparency. There's also stated benefits according to this website, including performance benefits. Environmental criteria measures how a company performs as a steward of the environment. 
through its energy use, waste generation, pollution, natural resource conservation, and treatment of animals. You have associate, or I would look at this as team members or employees, those kinds of benefits. Social criteria looks at how a company treats its employees, suppliers, customers, and communities. We're really talking about people. And then you have management. And this is where that word governance comes in. Governance criteria considers how a company conducts its business, encompasses its leadership, executive pay, audits, internal controls, and shareholder rights. So I know you're all thinking what I'm thinking. Thank goodness for this website, because that brings substantial clarity to this issue and exactly what ESG is, right? Okay, just poking fun a bit. These are obviously not details they're giving us. They are principles. But as we always know, the devil is always in the details, isn't it? So if we can't get it from ESG's own website, let's go to a couple of other places. How about the Corporate Finance Institute? They define ESG as a framework that helps stakeholders understand how an organization is managing risks and opportunities related to environmental, social, and governance criteria, sometimes called the ESG factors. It's a holistic view that sustainability extends beyond just environmental issues. While the term ESG is often used in the context of investing, stakeholders include not just the investment community, but also customers, suppliers, and employees, and all who are increasingly interested in how sustainable an organization's operations are. So this is important when you hear the word stakeholders because it really has a root in stakeholder theory. So this institute kind of sums this up in a few key highlights. ESG has evolved from other historical movements that focused on health and safety issues, pollution reduction, and corporate philanthropy. And that makes sense because there's so much of environmentalism that is embedded in this. ESG has changed how capital allocation decisions are made by many of the largest financial service firms and asset managers in the world. This is true. We'll talk more about that. And there's an emerging class of ESG specialists who are stepping into the industry and supporting both net zero and carbon neutrality goals. Okay, so when you read all of that, it sounds more like an environmentalism approach to doing business. Okay, well, who would, again, argue with the idea we should be good stewards of the earth that the Lord has given us? Well, let's look at one more definition or set of definitions by Investopedia. Environmental, social, and governance investing refers to a set of standards for a company's behavior used by socially conscious investors to screen potential investments. Environmental criteria consider how a company safeguards the environment, including corporate policies addressing climate change, for example. Social criteria examines how it manages relationships with employees, suppliers, customers, and communities where it operates. Governance deals with a company's leadership, executive pay, audits, internal controls, shareholder rights. I think you're seeing a common theme here. So what we really see in the ESG is that it deals with three main buckets, as we've just stated. Environmental issues, that's the E. Social issues, that's the S. And the governance to make sure that a company is adhering to those standards is the G. What I love about these types of things is that the principles are often broad and they sound fairly benign, but the execution, the implementation of those principles are often anything but. However, we're not getting into all of that today. We simply want to define what it is, which you can see is not easy. But then talk about the origins. Usually, if you truly understand the origin of something, then you can better understand the social speak. For example, this is kind of a side note, but I'll use abortion. The social speak on this is reproductive freedom. But if you knew the origins were from Margaret Sanger, who believed in eugenics and targeted less desirable populations, at least less desirable in her eyes, and ultimately was the early founder of Planned Parenthood, you can really see that in many ways the black community literally was targeted for termination by her work. 
that helps us really understand what, quote unquote, reproductive freedom really is and where it came from. Okay, back to ESG when we return. Okay, I see you share videos every day of one-year-old Johnny falling asleep with his face in his birthday cake. If you can share that video, surely you can share the grid with your friends and neighbors. Post it on Facebook, like it on YouTube, share it on Twitter, email, or text it. Help us grow our audience and hit that like button and give us a five-star rating when you listen. Thank you for joining the fight for faith and freedom. So we've attempted to define ESG, but where did it really come from? You can point to environmentalism, or in the past 10 to 20 years, the buzzword was corporate sustainability or going green. There have been lots of pieces, and even DEI has gained a lot of momentum, which really is a microcosm of the S component of ESG. Even in the 1960s, there was the beginnings of SRI, which stands for Socially Responsible Investing. But where did it start to become a formation, or this, what I'd say, a more formal formation of these principles? That would be in 2005, and it didn't come from the United States. And I know that's a complete shocker to this audience. In 2005, the term ESG was first used publicly by the United Nations Environment Program Initiative in the Fresh Fields Report. This report was done in collaboration between a large international law firm and a big-time investment group, or I should say groups, in order that a legal framework for the integration of environmental, social, and governance issues could be all pulled together. So that should give you pause right there. The United Nations had a bunch of billionaires put a report together to create a legal framework to govern investments under the principles of environmental, social, and governance frameworks or principles. Can you say control, ladies and gentlemen? Just follow the money. However, the term, while not used publicly until 2005, was actually birthed in 2003 by James Gifford, who hopped on a plane to Geneva from Australia to be an intern and to work with a team that formed the United Nations Principles of responsible investing. Now, why is the United Nations getting involved in responsible investing or sustainability? Does this sound like the formations of a one control center, a one world control center, a one world government? It certainly does to me. Anyway, what did James Gifford have to do with this? What was he doing prior to stepping into this world? Well, I'm glad you asked. He actually built email push campaigns for climate activists in Sydney, Australia. So first and foremost, these principles were built by a climate activist. When I look at the various timelines of this since 2005, I think to myself, how did this gain so much momentum and I knew nothing about it? I'm just going to give you one example. From 2005 to 2020, Morgan Stanley Capital International introduced more than 20 funds, investment funds, that were wholly focused on environmental or social issues. They acquired research firms, data analytic firms, and they even established a climate risk center in Zurich. Now, I thought investment funds were supposed to maximize shareholder value, not be the epicenter for pushing social and climate issues. More to come on that. And I share this because this is just one example of a single investment firm. Morgan Stanley's creating all these funds, and these aren't just funds that you can invest in from your 401k. These are funds that are buying up small companies, data analytic companies, to push this agenda. Worse, the way mutual funds work is they invest in the Whirlpools, Amazons, and Walmarts of the world, and with tremendous financial clout, they have a say who is on the boards of those companies and can actually threaten to remove their investments if the companies don't adhere to their ESG principles. Now, I won't list the companies that have bought into the ESG hook, line, and sinker, 
or how it's being used to control commerce, these are topics that we will cover in future podcasts. For now, I hope today's podcast gives you an introduction to the concept and the definition of ESG and where it actually comes from. While it's gained significant prominence in recent years, the original environmental and social movements of the 1960s have had incredible influence. For now, know that I'm incredibly aware of this. It is paving the way for control, and we know in Revelation that the Antichrist will flex his muscle for control, and certainly commerce is the way that this is likely to be implemented. After all, the mark of the beast reference in Scripture says that no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark. So keep that in mind as we continue on this journey together. But I'll leave you with this. Remember, Jesus Christ is our only eternal hope. Until next time. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Grid. And special thanks to our sponsor, America First Insurance Group. Be sure to visit our website at kingdompatriot.us to join the movement of faith and freedom. That's kingdompatriot.us. Join today so that together we can make a difference. Your membership is appreciated, your input is valued, and your voice is needed. I'm Chris Kuhlman, and I am a Kingdom Patriot. Oh, 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 oh,